Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. Ray Dalio is a legend on Wall Street. His net worth is somewhere north of $18 billion. His hedge fund, Bridgewater, is the largest in the world. He has promoted his principles and his commitment to radical transparency as a key to wh- as to why Bridgewater is so successful. But the reality is that the culture of Bridgewater, which is completely dominated by Dalio, is replete with paranoia, backstabbing, and the place is just plain weird. Author Rob Copeland takes us behind the scenes at Bridgewater in his new book, The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. We're very lucky to have him with us this morning. Good morning, Rob, and welcome to Mountain Money. Thank you for having me. Rob, what motivated you to write this book, and how difficult was it, was it for you to get all these people from Bridgewater to talk to you? Well, I'd say the difficulty was part of the appeal. You know, you're onto something. Uh, the, um, I, I will say that, you know, I've been writing about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for close to 10 years now. And what's been remarkable to me is, as he's just become so world famous mm-hmm. um, for these, these so-called principles and the, this TED talk that he does and YouTube videos and he's interviewed by Gwyneth Paltrow and he really portrays himself as this sort of kind supplicant um, with this, who has cracked the code to human nature. So as he became more and more famous, sort of the gap between his version of reality and what was actually going on just became so wide that, you know, you could fit a book in there. So the book does delve into what happens behind the scenes at Bridgewater, but for our listeners who may not be all that familiar with hedge funds, what exactly does Bridgewater do? Sure. So at, at their core, you know, hedge funds like Bridgewater simply attempt to make money off of predicting global economic changes. They're not all that different than you than anyone with, you know, a Fidelity account who might, you know, buy a stock that they hope will go up, um, except that what Bridgewater does is it can invest on or against, so it can bet on things going up or down um, in virtually any market worldwide. So they're not limited to just buying, you know, Google or Apple stock, but they might be able to invest in, you know, the currencies of Malaysia um, or the bonds uh, in Africa. And that means that, you know, they have a chance to make a lot of money in a way that most of us don't. And they also have a chance, you know, to lose a ton. And, you know, Bridgewater obviously has become the largest uh, hedge fund in the world. So, and very sophisticated investors choose to put important funds like pension fund money into it. How good are they? In other words, how how successful has Bridgewater been looking at over, a, say, a 10-year period at, 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 at creating returns for its investors? Well, let's look at it over an even longer period. So over over the firm's, say, four or five decade history, at, at the very beginning, for a few decades, Bridgewater was tremendous. They were one of the best in the world. Um, and that was in large part uh, because Ray, as he often said, had studied history um, sort of and understood uh, better than almost anyone else um, how he could predict how things would go in the future. Now, for the past 10 or 15 years, um, Bridgewater, despite still being the world's largest hedge fund, has really underperformed miserably. Um, and as I get into in the book, I don't think that's a coincidence um, because for the past 20, 10 or 15 years, Ray has really been singularly focused on being like the celebrity and being someone um, with these so-called principles um, as opposed to someone who is really spending all the time to trying to crack the markets. We want to get to the principles, but let me ask one more question along these lines, which is, even in the early years, as, as you write in the book, it seemed like Ray Dalio, year after year, would predict an imminent depression. 
Uh, and, and, and obviously they didn't always happen. Indeed, they didn't ever happen. How, how did that sort of influence his investing strategy and the performance of the fund? Well, it, it gets into this idea that there, there really are two Ray Dalios. There's, there's the, dis, this, the description of himself, which for you know, so many decades was the guy who would have gone on a program like this one and said, oh my gosh, a depression is coming. And you probably, you have to listen to someone like that, right? Who yeah. wants to say, oh, we don't care about risk. Um, you know, I'm just full speed ahead into the, into the tornado. Um, and importantly, about every 10 years, we do get a recession. So every 10 years or so, because the economy is a cycle, um, Ray was able to say, I predicted it. And then he would just ignore, you know, the prior nine years where, where he was wrong. Um, he broke, and broke the broken clock principle. Ex exactly. That, that principle will be in the next edition of my book, <laughs> um, uh, the, if not his. But the and, and then I think the, the other thing just to remember is that the, so much of being a successful Wall Street investor, it's not only about the numbers you produce, it's about being a great marketer. And Ray, probably better than anyone I've ever interacted with, um, is great at telling the story of himself and at, at Bridgewater in a way that just makes investors, pension funds, it makes them feel really comfortable. So the principles have become world famous. Can you talk about what those principles are and what role do they play in the day-to-day -day life at Bridgewater? So the, Ray Dalio was already a billionaire by the mid-2000s before he ever comes up with this word principles. Um, and he starts searching for an animating reason uh, for all of his success. Um, and he starts to write down just doctrine for how people should, should act at Bridgewater. Um, and it starts off, and frankly, it's not that crazy. His, his over-animating, um, his overarching belief is that we should be more honest with one another, that even you know, in this interview, if I were, for instance, taking too long to answer your question, that instead of maybe being polite, maybe you should cut me off and say, hey, Rob, you're rambling. Um, <laughs> that, that might be a little annoying if you actually do it, but you know, you can get the idea. It's not crazy. Um, the problem is that he, these principles, they start to grow from you know, a one-page document to a five-page document to a, at a point there's almost 400 different principles. Um, and it just, it, it, it's like a, a rail car that is like careening off, off uh, into the mountains. And as one person in the book, as the CEO of Bridgewater even says to Ray at one point, Ray, you know, the Bible has 10 principles. Uh, <laughs> you've got 400. Uh, and, you know, we, we can get into the reasons for it, but uh, Ray seems to become, it's sort of get an addiction to coming up with new rules and then, um, you know, yelling at people who, uh, who don't follow them. And one of the extraordinary things in the book is the picture you paint of the way in which the principles were imposed or, 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 or sort of dominating the culture of the company. And it, it felt a little bit like Chairman Mao's Little Red Book that, that all the, the employees had to have copies of it and had to evaluate their actions against it. Exactly. And, and look, at a, at a point for many years, people at Bridgewater were given iPads and they had to carry around the iPads because they had the principles on them. And God forbid we walk into a meeting and don't have the full list of, of principles. Um, the, the, the China comparison is, is an apt one because, you know, in many ways, what Bridgewater, the world's biggest hedge fund, and, and Ray Dalio uh, have been operating is, is an incredibly authoritarian society um, in, in the backwoods of, of Connecticut. And the, the difference is, you know, he does it with just a tremendous amount of money.
So it's, you know, you, you can pair that authoritarian mentality with the promise of becoming a billionaire and um, it's off to the races. Can you delve into a bit about the issue log and how it comes to apply to such mundane items such as the food in the cafeteria? Sure. So, so the, the, the principles, the, probably the most important one to understand is that at Bridgewater, there can be no such thing as small problems. That every problem is an excuse for what Ray calls a diagnosis and a probe and a reason to sort of find not just, not just expose that you made a mistake, but sort of delve into the reasons why you made the mistake. So Bridgewater creates an issue log, which is basically just a, you know, a, a place for tattling. Um, where the whole company comes in and, and writes everything bad that's going on um, to, with the excuse being, hey, the principals say we should investigate everything. Now, the problem is, um, which I think anyone with a four-year-old um, probably has experienced, that there comes a point at which there aren't big enough problems to investigate. We've already sort of complained about everything major. And so the issue log becomes consumed by smaller and smaller issues to the point where there's literally an investigation of why the peas in the cafeteria were wilted one day. Um, and you, it's, it's easy for us to laugh at this, you know, it's easy to say, ha ha. But there are real people whose job it was to run the cafeteria who are suddenly being literally investigated by their billionaire hedge fund um, uh, boss for you know what's wrong in their brain that they put out the wrong piece, um, so it gets uh, it's it's a bit like a dark comedy to be honest. And, and and flesh that out a little bit by talking about the process that would that an issue investigation would go through and how public it was within the company. And so at Bridgewater and and Ray has talked about this a lot publicly is it, it operates with a doctrine of what he calls radical transparency which means that everything at the firm, most everything is taped and visible to all. So for things like the peas, or for, for instance, the investigation of a woman who said she would bring in bagels one morning and then forgot, um, this is a real thing again. Um, Ray begins to tape uh, these investigations and make case studies of them. So the mistake that you've made, which might have been, frankly, might have been a major one or might have been a minor one, becomes an excuse to embarrass you um, and to to make a make an example of you there, there is a principle uh, at Bridgewater called say that people at Bridgewater have to be willing to humiliate themselves to get at the truth um, and if you take one thing out of this book um, I think it would be that most everyone at Bridgewater gets humiliated at some point except for Ray himself can you delve a little bit more into the bagel incident uh, with regards to the bizarre case of Eileen Lied? Oh, yeah, sorry. how many hours uh, do we have to cover <laughs> the bagels? The, um, the, so the, the, first of all, the remarkable thing about the, the bagel incident is that um, the man doing the investigation, Fridgewater, is a man named Jim Comey, um, who, yes, it's that Jim Comey. Uh, he later <laughs> becomes director of the FBI. And he, he was hired at Bridgewater to be the general counsel, and they called him the godfather. So he would investigate um, everyone for everything large and small. Um, probably the seminal uh, achievements, if we can even call it that, of Jim Comey at his two-plus years at, at Bridgewater is he begins to investigate the firm's co-CEO, Eileen Murray, for... Uh, for a relatively small lie. You know, she, she claims to have written an email that in fact her assistant wrote. Um, and again, I can, I, we can hear the eye rolls right now. This is a real thing that Jim Comey spends close to a year 
investigating and making videos of her and interrogating everyone around her. And it is eventually released internally as sort of an ongoing soap opera with the title Eileen Lies. And I'll, I'll spoil the ending of this for you, which is that after this entire investigation and this complete embarrassment of, you know, an adult woman and the CEO, Ray simply invents a new principle at the end. And he says, you know what, actually all things look bigger up close. So after the whole thing, after her reputation is destroyed, after Jim Comey has been paid $7 million a year to dive into it, um, Ray just changes the rules and moves on. Yeah, th- some of the other sort of Comey-related stories in the book about the kinds of investigations and the kinds of resources that are deployed to look at really minor and silly things uh, were pretty extraordinary. That's the, the really wild thing about um, about working on this, this book and, and the sort of Jim Comey in, in general is that you can see how if you take an attitude that there are no such thing as small problems, that you actually blow up small problems and create bigger problems of them because there actually are in real life such things as small problems. It is capable. Uh, we are all capable of making mistakes. And if you spend your time investigating every small mistake of ours, um, in my view, you know, I think that says more about the man doing the investigating um, than it does about the person you know, making the mistake. One of the other sort of things that Bridgewater and, and Dalio are known for is the way they sort of evaluate personnel with something called a baseball card. Can you sort of describe the baseball card and the incentives that are created by the way in which people are evaluated? So just like a baseball player, you know, has a, has a card that has their stats on the back of it with their RBIs or their strikeouts, et cetera. Um, at Bridgewater, too, employees are given a, a what was called a baseball card, which contained their ratings from one another in, you know, dozens, almost 100 different personality categories. Now, that means that right now during this conversation, you would literally be rating me in some things that make sense, such as, you know, listening. So you might say Rob is not listening to the question, but then you would, there would be other sort of like nebulous categories like driving towards success, things like that. And so everyone is constantly rating each other and giving each other uh, scores on a one to 10 scale. And when Ray describes this publicly, he describes it as sort of the ultimate meritocracy because everyone has a voice. Everyone can weigh in on something. But the real uh, sort of, a sadistic part of this um, is that, as as I discovered in the book, the whole ratings thing was was actually rigged from the beginning to make sure that Ray's votes counted more than anyone else in the most important categories. And that meant that no matter what you did, your stats were always going to be reliant on how what Ray personally thought of you, and that meant that there really was no incentive for anyone ever to tell Ray the truth about what they felt about, you know, what was going on at Bridgewater. Were there also weird incentives for employees to find negative things about each other in an effort to sort of make themselves look better? Oh, absolutely, because first of all, they would they would uh, pay you less if you didn't provide enough negative feedback on people because they consider that sort of a personality flaw. You're unwilling to, in Bridgewater parlance, touch the nerve. Um, and there's also, a, you know, this sense that if I can't find something that about you that's wrong, that no one else can, then I sort of haven't uh, done my value add for this organization. I can't just criticize you for what other people have criticized you for. And so that creates, you know, for many people at Bridgewater, this sort of 
spiral of negative feedback. And as, as the book gets into, um, with, with some really uh, uh, real life consequences for, for people uh, involved. I just, you know, listening to these stories, my anxiety is high and I can't imagine working in a workplace like this, especially when I'm asking you to describe the trials where large groups would be assembled to watch employees be criticized. Can you describe that process? Well, I actually, I want to give you a sense of why someone would stay too, right? Because yeah, I think it's easy. <laughs> we're, just, we're both sitting here wondering that. <laughs> so remember that Ray, all throughout this time, is he's, you know, he's appearing on national television. He's on Charlie Rose. He's, he's interviewed by every major interviewer. And he's telling people that Bridgewater is a place where it may be uncomfortable, but you will achieve a higher level version of yourself. You will learn your flaws. And who among us, by the way, doesn't want to be a better person. So you come into Bridgewater and he tells you it's going to be painful so that anything that happens or anything you participate in can sort of be justified as this as this long term journey that you're on to discovering your own your, your own flaws. Um, of course, for so many people, they, they realize eventually that this isn't actually about them. It's about Ray. It's just about reproving over and over and over again that, you know, Ray knows best and that no one could possibly uh, equal him. Uh, there's another incentive, too, honestly, which is if you're at the world's largest hedge fund, you can make a ton of money. So uh, there's a lot of sort of personality based organizations out there um, that, that sort of profess to uh, to help you. Uh, you know, go along the road of self-improvement. Um, Bridgewater might be the premier one where they'll also pay you to put up with it. So, you know, Jim Comey getting paid $7 million a year um, to investigate bagels, who among us probably wouldn't would give that a shot for that kind of reward? And does Bridgewater, I mean, as we're sitting here talking about this and we're talking about why would someone stay, do they, is their turnover pretty, uh, relatively high? Oh my gosh, it's it's incredibly high, and to this day, you know, their recruiters have to have to dig deep to to find people to to join. But what they sort of crack the code on is they recruit largely new college graduates, and there will always be sort of a new cohort of twenty-two year olds who don't have any sense of what a workplace can or should be like, and they're relatively unformed, and they you know put them in an internal firing squad at at one another. Um, for, for many years, you know, they, they simply recruited from a small number of Ivy League schools where they would say, you know, Bridgewater is special. Bridgewater will help you become a, you know, a, a billionaire. And there's always going to be a few hundred people every year um, who are willing to sort of dive into that gauntlet. You know, as we've been talking about some of these sort of internal um, processes and procedures, it sounds like they take would take an enormous amount of time, things like the principles. Yet... It, when, when one visualizes the world's largest head fund, one has an image of, you know, a hundred very smart people doing critical analysis of potential changes in the market. That information is fed up to a higher level and eventually sophisticated decisions are made that are going to allow the fund to make money. But I don't think that's how Bridgewater works, is it? Well, Ray would have loved everything you just described up until that isn't how Bridgewater works. Because <laughs> um, that is the impression that, that he gives. But... In reality, what I discovered was that of the more than 2,000 full-time employees at Bridgewater at its peak, which is a, a colossal hedge fund, fewer than 10 actually had anything to do with the 
a direct investment process. And that despite, you know, Ray's talk about how he studied history and how he can predict the next recession, et cetera, et cetera, that this really was far more of an ad hoc approach than anyone uh, that than Bridgewater has ever admitted. Um, there are so many examples where Ray simply overrules those around him because he's able to point to his own baseball card. And he's able to say, well, I'm rated the best at this. You should trust me. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the performance of the fund has has not kept pace with its peers in recent years, because there hasn't been an actual open inquiry inside Bridgewater of what are the best ideas. What is Dalio's role at Bridgewater now and what's likely to happen in to the firm in a post-Dalio era? Well, he's he retired ostensibly um, last year and took on a sort of a new series of titles, including founder, CIO, mentor, member of the board. But, you know, as I've been reporting, I can tell you that he still looms incredibly large at at Bridgewater. He still uh, plays a role. And you have to remember that just because he's retired, he's still the face of the firm. So it doesn't matter necessarily who holds the title of CEO all that much. Um, It matters that it's Ray who at any point can call into any radio program, go on TV, speak at a conference. um, And all he has to say is, you know, the sentence, I don't have confidence in the people running Bridgewater and Bridgewater's in in a world of trouble. Um, And, you know, he wields that power um, incredibly deftly, even to this day. And so so he's not active anymore. Um, what, what, does he still have a, a substantial ownership stake in the company? Yes, I would probably disagree with you that he's not incredibly active anymore. I would say it's true he's retired, but he's still one of the major owners. He still weighs in. He has an office. He weighs in on the major decisions. And remember, it's not a true meritocracy. It's not like he's just one vote out of however many. Um, the whole system has been rigged to, to give him a, a higher weighting. So... It's true there are other people there now. You know, he is, he's in his 70s. He won't be around forever. But, you know, Ray Dalio and the principals are still sort of the most famous um, set of words around Bridgewater Associates. Some have questioned whether there is sort of, whether there is in fact underlying merit in the, in the approach to the fund. And I know at one time the SEC was looking into it. Do, do you have any sense that there's anything, anything, quote, wrong, end quote, with Bridgewater other than this sort of ego-dominated approach that's been taken? Well, there, there was a, a very f- uh, famous whistleblower, actually the whistleblower who, f- who found the Madoff fraud, who was convinced that Bridgewater was, was a Ponzi scheme. Um, I think that if you, if you want to say what's right and wrong, if we wanted to go as, as simple as that, you know, it's not a Ponzi scheme, but it certainly is nothing like what he describes publicly, um, both in the management style and in the investing. And I've sort of been blown away since, since the book has come out. You know, some of its investors who may or may not be very sophisticated, but they certainly are very rich. Um, some of them have asked me, how does the investing really work? And I say, goodness, you have your money with this firm. Why are you asking me? Um, so I, I, I think there is, there's sort of a lesson to be learned here also that to believe in Bridgewater is to sort of put your complete faith in this, this one man and in this shadow investment system um, when by virtually any metric, you would have been better off uh, just investing your money in a plain 60-40 split or any sort of plain investments over the last 15, 20 years. Rob, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The book is called The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. It's a fascinating book. And Rob, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. Thank you.
The question of how to value content produced by news outlets and disseminated on social media and on search platforms has come to the fore as governments around the world press Google and Meta to pay for the news they disseminate. Our new, uh, a new paper presents findings of an economic analysis of the value of news for U.S. media, together with an estimate for what fair payment from Google and Facebook to news outlets should be for the news content distributed on these two platforms. Anya Schifrin is the Director of Technology and Media and Communications at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, and Harris Mateen is Assistant Professor of Finance at the University of Houston C.T. Bauer College of Business. Both published a working paper that estimates the amount of money that Meta and Google should pay U.S. news publishers for the value of journalism and information they produce. Both authors are here this morning to discuss their findings. And thank you for joining us this morning, Harris and Anya. Hi, thank you for you. having us. Let's begin. How did you identify this topic to research in depth, and how long did it take you to put the paper together? Sure. Thank you for asking. During the pandemic, I wanted my students to work with me on something that was positive. So we began looking around the world to see what different governments and foundations and companies were doing to help support journalism. And in the fall of 2020, I said to one of my students, Kylie Tumiati, why don't you take a look at that thing I hear Australia is doing to help get Google and Facebook to pay for news. So we wrote a whole report about it and then the law got passed in February 21 and we became suddenly sort of the center of a lot of a, the conversations about this, about this kind of law because Australia was one of the first places in the world that had actually managed to get Google and Facebook to pay up for news that they had been using. So fast forward, we had a lot of different conferences, we wrote a lot of different articles, we gathered with lots of people around the world. And then um, in April, somebody said to us, well, hey, what if we had that kind of law in the US? How much would Google and Facebook actually owe news outlets in the US. So I knew that this was a job for economists to calculate, and I'm not an economist. <laughs> so I asked Harris Mateen and a couple of economists at the Brattle Group, which is a consultancy that does reparations and other kind of est economic estimates. And I would say in April, I started by just looking around the world and seeing who else had done similar studies. And then we began crunching the numbers and then the paper came out in November and has had a lot of attention since then. So thank you very much for asking. So let's talk a little bit about underlying methodologies. Um, when, when we talk about what they should quote, oh, end quote, what are we saying the economic transaction is between Google and the news purveyor? Um, so this is really the concept of what we like to call um, economic surplus. Mm -hmm. um, in economics, um, whenever two parties come together, say publishers and platforms, um, they create jointly created value in what is called cooperative bargaining situations. So we, do, we not only talk about this idea that publishers benefit from platforms because they get a platform to disseminate their content, which is obviously true. But it's also true that platforms benefit from publisher content. 
because they get a source of content that is informative, that is diverse, credible, and timely. And so the idea is trying to understand the net value or the surplus value that is created by these two parties together. Is it fair to say that, you know, if a publisher was concerned about their news being used by another party, that the best practice would be to put it behind a firewall? Um, no. So uh, this uh, um, uh, misunderstands the market structure. So the market structure is such now that most of online, most of news consumption has moved from print to online. And it does, this does not mean that news consumption is unpopular. It's as popular as before. The only difference now is that people choose to consume news either through news websites, search results, or, or social media like Facebook. And so it's not possible for news publishers to um, you know, just stop um, allowing search results to, um, or social media to have news results on their platforms because the market structure is such that nowadays a lot of users, including I and I think listeners in, on this, uh, on the, on the show, um, uh, when, when I want to search for something like what's happening in Ukraine, the first thing I do is I search Ukraine on Google. Quite often what I do once I get the search results is I just consume the news from the Google website itself, or I consume news from snippets that, that are present on the search results. The whole process of clicking on an article and reading it is very much downstream. But that does not mean crucially that the news content has not provided value to the user, to advertisers, and therefore to the platform. So the problem is, therefore, that I have to be on these platforms because um, that's how the market is structured. However, the net benefit that the joint relationship is generating is being taken up right now only by the platforms. So, you know, as, as a recovering economics student of many years ago, I am visualizing, you know, graphs with lines on them. And when we talk about economic surplus, I can see the diagram. The question that I have, though, is how do we try to translate that diagram into dollars and cents or pounds and rubles and, and other currency? Tell us a little bit about how you take that next step. Yes, yeah, so, so this was based on a simple but powerful idea that if surplus is being generated by news publishers and platforms together, I need to find the fraction of revenue that Google and Facebook make that is attributable to news. Mm. The way we do that is we want to understand the fraction of user base that is uh, that demands news. So for example, on Google side, what we want to understand is how many users who use Google require news content to be an essential feature of Google search. The, the, an, the analogy here is if I use a cable service and my prime reason for using the cable service is live sports, I only value this cable service if and only if the sports is present. If it's not present, I, there are other things that are valuable to me, but I won't subscribe to it. So, so what we do is we depend on state-of-the-art recent studies, recent research 
that pins down the fraction of time or the fraction of user demand that is demanding news content on Google search and on Facebook. Um, so basically, the two studies that we use, one is done by Fair Research, which is a consulting firm in Switzerland. It uses a, a randomized control trial to figure out um, between a Google that has no news content and a Google that has news content, how many people, uh, how, what is the user engagement that's there? And what they find, and which is very plausible, is that one third of all users on Google think that news content is an essential component of value for Google search. Similarly, for Facebook, what we do is we depend on a very recent uh, study published in the American Economic Review um, that tells us the fraction of time people spend consuming news on Facebook in the United States. It's about five minutes only, so it's not it's not like with, with we're saying that people consume you know hours and hours of news on Facebook, but five minutes should translate into revenues that should be shared with news publishers. So so that's how we work on it. Um, so, so so we start off with the total revenues, we add to news content, then we split it up between publishers and platforms. <clears throat> the working paper does go into an estimated value. Can you talk about once those calculations came through what that value was placed on for the for the news that they've been using? So So the value that's there is uh, um we calculate 10 to 12 billion dollars for Google uh that should be paid annually to news publishers. And um, $2 billion, roughly, that Facebook should pay annually to news publishers. So I would add that this is based on many conservative assumptions. Um, and um, um, we had to scale down our, our numbers each time big. But these are numbers that we, we, we think are backed by sound economic logic. So how does this theoretical need to, to sort of provide some revenue sharing. How would that translate into a regulatory structure in, in, in the most efficient way, in your view? Um, so, in, in a regulatory structure, um, I mean, ANEA is, is, a, is more of an expert. Yes. Is that there are different media bargaining courts around the world. And I think ANEA can talk more about that. ANEA? Anya, we're unable to hear you. Yeah, absolutely. So the basic problem is that the big tech companies have been making lots and lots of money off of distributing news, but they haven't actually shared the revenues very fairly. So around the world, government have tried all kinds of different things. You know, they've tried to push for licensing agreements, copyright legislation, um, you know, all kinds of things. And, and these companies are also very good at tax avoidance. So it's just been a huge problem. So what Australia did was they said this is a competition problem and the platforms have to negotiate with the publishers. And if they don't, the government will appoint a mediator 
and the mediator will supervise the arbitration. So the what's happening so much with these laws is they're not necessarily being used. What they're what's happening is they're being used to pressure the platforms into making arrangements with the publishers. Um, and Canada has um, has passed its own law. And that's been a really tough fight where Facebook dropped Canadian news entirely. And the publishers had a very hard time negotiating with Google and they agreed um, to settle for $100 million a year. In Germany, Facebook, um, Google is making deals privately with different publishing groups. And again, giving them very small amounts of money, you know, a few million euros a year. And then in the rest of the world, Google's so afraid of the laws that they're really doing three things. One is they're going around telling governments, we're going to drop all your news. The second thing that they're doing is lobbying furiously against these laws. So in Brazil, when the vote was coming up in May, Google sort of changed the search engine. So if you typed in a query, you got a little note from Google saying, hey, this law is going to ruin the Internet. And then the third thing that they're doing is they are making these side deals with, with government. So they're lobbying, they're threatening, and then they're, sorry, making side deals with publishers. And so they're giving more money, of course, to the big publishers, and then the little ones get left out. Um, so that's why we think the laws were actually, we've come to the view that the laws were a good idea because it's already happening all, all the time that Google is making payments to publishers, uh, Facebook much less, but it's happening in a way that's not transparent, it's not regulated, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. And so a group of us got together in South Africa last summer with media scholars and journalists and journalism organizations from all over the world organized by Michael Markovitz at Gibbs, if you want more information. And we agreed on a set of principles. And one of the things that we want is more transparency, so we know which outlets are getting payments. Um, and we like guarantees that the money's gonna be spent on journalism. You know, if you're a hedge, if a hedge fund is taking over a little local paper in California, we don't want any money from big tech to go to, to go to the hedge fund, right? We want to go to journalism. So we really want transparency and we want promises that the money will go to journalism and we want to make sure everyone's included so the little outlets as well as the big ones we don't want it to just be the law of the jungle which it is right now where if you're big and powerful you just get you know money and if you're small you don't necessarily and this matters a lot because with um, AI and the large language models, the same problem's happening all over again, which is the large language models need quality information. So they should be paying the people that provide the quality information. Um, so I th we so we think it's just uh, very, yeah, very, very important to uh, negotiate collectively with these big companies. Anya, in your last response, you had talked a bit about Brazil and other countries. What's happening in the U.S.? Has there been any legislation proposed? Yeah, so Senator Klobuchar has um, reintroduced the Journalism Competition Preservation Act. And that um, that would be a sort of a U.S. version where it would encourage the platforms to negotiate with the publishers. 
and um, and we think that our paper is really going to help publishers understand how much money they can get. And then California has a proposal, which I think it was Buffy Wicks who proposed, called the California Journalism Preservation Act. And I'm not sure, I don't know when that will be voted on next year. Um, I think it's really important to note that, you know, Google's put out a lot of talking points against these laws, and there's a lot of criticism of these laws. But I think it's really important to note it, you know, to note that these laws on their own will not save journalism. They're one tool in the toolkit, but a lot of other things have to happen as well. But, you know, these laws, as I said, the large outlets are already getting tons and tons of money. So we need to really make sure that it's just more fair for everybody. We've had the opportunity this morning to talk with Anya Schifrin. She is at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and Horace Mateen. He is with the University of Houston C.T. Bauer College of Business. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking about your working paper. Thank you very much. We really appreciate hearing from you. you. Thanks a lot for your interest. Lola Eclectic Market is born from passion and desire to bring joy and uniqueness to your life through goods that are connected to culture, made with goodness, love, and soul. Joining us this morning to talk about this Main Street gem is owner of Lola Eclectic Market, Andrea Zavala. Andrea, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. (laughs) Happy to have you. How did Lola Eclectic Market get started? That's a good question because I don't know if I can tell you exactly how it started. It's more of like a why. Um, We've been here for myself 19 years, my husband 20 years. Um, We met here, Uh, we started our family here, we have three kids, all boys. And so at some point you wanna teach them about who we are, where we come from, and it gets tiring of telling them all about these stories about our culture. So I wanted to see more of our representation of where we come from, where our family people, we're very close to our family, big families. Uh, We wanted them to stay connected to that. Um, so I saw that need, and, and so we always travel back home. We visited our parents, our family, everything. And when we did that, you know, I always went out and, and scouted for new things for myself. And when I wore them here, people would stop me and say, where do you get that from? Where do you get that from? And so I started bringing more things. I started doing pop-ups. I started doing markets. And, and I saw that need. People will get excited. They love the colors. They love the uniqueness. And, and it grew up like that. So, you know, we, we were started, we were doing that, we were bringing more things, we learned on our way, we learned that some things weren't really authentic, and so we focus on bringing things that are really handmade, authentic, and with natural fabrics. Um, and so then we found our spot on Main Street, and we have a showroom, and we're there right now. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the kinds of products that you import, and where do they come from? What, 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 how, how widespread is the geographic area that you import from? So right now we're focused on Ecuador. I'm from Ecuador and Brazil. We travel a lot there and I visited Peru. I visited Chile. I lived in Argentina for a little while when I was a student. So I have, I I know about authenticity my whole life. We we know what it's um, authentic and what it's not. And we know that Park City people like the legitimate things. You know, we have a couple of stores on Main Street that bring uh, high quality and good alpaca here that you also have like little pop-up places in markets that are not really authentic but that's people like it still um, but Lola it's uh, about finding products 
that um, are made in a tradition where the fabrics and the materials are locally sourced and assembled. And you had mentioned, and I think that's the, the <clears throat> what stands out most for me when I look at your website is the colorful, and it's sweaters, it's blankets, it's bags. There's much more. What other types of unique items do you have? We have toys, we have home decor, we have pillows. I mean, we have a little bit of everything that can tell you that we can have more, right? We, we have these things that you can find that are unique, um, that you can decor your house. I personally like it because I'm a mom. I'm always busy. We own a business, Hardwood Tree Service. And so we're always on the run. And it's hard sometimes to feel nice and unique and, and, and fun. And so I will normally just put my regular stuff and then throw something of my, my store, like Lola, my sweaters, my earrings, my uh, headbands, my purse, my tones, like whatever I can find. And that's how, that's what we have at the store. So you mentioned a few countries that you acquire goods from. It, it's not like you can go to a Las Vegas trade show and pick up everything you need for your inventory. Tell us a little bit about the process by which you find and acquire the goods that you sell. So we learned, as I mentioned earlier, that we, you, the things that you find sometimes out there, even at the local markets that you think they're making them, they're not authentic. You know, a lot of things are now made in China, Vietnam, like in different places, and they're mass produced. And sometimes we think, I like to tell this story that we're with my sister on the beach in Ecuador, and we go out to the local markets, and she buys a hat, and she's so excited because she thinks it's a Panaman hat. And, and once she sits and I take, I take a better look at it, it has a tag, and it says made in China. So you really have to like go out there. We went there last year. We went to Otavalo in Ecuador where things are made. We're talking with the artisans, with the people that are working with the artisans. We make sure that these are fabric. We did a little experiment where, where they burn the fabric. And if it's synthetic, it just, it just folds and it turns into a little bowl. And when it's natural fabric, it dissolves and it just becomes an ash. So you have to, we do this process, we go and make sure that these are handmade, that these are not just made in China, that nobody's tricking us, that they're really authentic and with all this hard work. It sounds like you've had to do a lot to be able to build up that knowledge base. Um, you are located within 350 Main, which is a long established business on Main Street, but it's a unique way to look at getting a footprint on Main Street. Can you talk a little bit about how that relationship came to be? That came to me because I used to work at 350 Main. I'm friends with Courtney and Fabio. They're excellent people. They're, they support the community, um, their employees, which brings additional community. And Alpine Distillery left. You might not know. And I was driving by, and I was like, what's Courtney doing with that space? And, and we started talking. And at the beginning, I was like, you know, I don't think I can take it. Like, I will have to be there. And, and it was like, different ideas. And then she was also not having anything on that display. And I needed a place to store my things as well, because they are unique, they are expensive. If I'm doing these markets, they fly away, they fall, they break. And I wanted to have them displayed. I don't think it's, it's they're very precious to have them like stored and having them to pull out. And so it was a good idea to just have them displayed and have this showroom. So we, we talked and we said, I'll, I'll take your, your display window. And, and we came with an agreement and we're so happy about it because you know, they, it's a fine dining restaurant. They own 350 Main, they have the spur. And so their clientele is looking for high quality. They're looking for new experiences. So when they walked by my store, I get extra exposure. 
For the many procrastinators in our audience who have not yet fulfilled their need for holiday gifts, talk to us a little bit about what you might have that would interest them and what hours they can come by and look. We are here for them. We exist for them. We're here for the hard to please Ah. people, the ones on your list that have it all. Um, we have truly unique items. You know, we have totes, we have uh, sweaters. We're known for our colorful knitted alpaca sweaters. We have blankets. We have, right now we, we had a good December. We ran out of kids and men um, things, but we're still good for the hard to please women out there that are looking for these unique items. Yes. And uh, for those that you know, are are listening to this. You have a fantastic website. You are the model of many of your <laughs> items. What is that website that you have? We are www.lolaeclecticmarket.com and you can also look at us on Instagram and Facebook and we'll be open for the season every day right now from 11 to 3-ish when 350 Main starts opening. Fantastic. And there's quite a bit to, to, to see right there at 350 Main. We've been speaking with owner of Lola Eclectic Market, Andrea Zavala. Thank you so much for Thank joining you, us guys. this morning. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.